0: Americans are experiencing firsthand the impact of hyperpartisan politics and yet such divides across the political sphere are not limited to just the United States, France's President Emmanuel Macron describing his political landscape says, the old division of politics into right and left no longer applies, now it is openness versus nationalism, and nationalism means war. Hello, everyone. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, and today we have with us author, journalist, William Drozdiak. He's the author of a new book, The Last President of Europe, Emmanuel Macron's Race to Revive France and Save the World. But before I bring Bill into the conversation, let me thank especially our global forum members. That's a special level of membership and it's really been making such a difference here at the World Affairs Council, as we've been in part, as you well know, locked down for now over eight months. It, uh, and, and another thing that's helped so much is the sponsors who have supported programs like today's. Uh, Maisie, Maisie Hyken, I always see your name here as one of the program sponsors, we're so grateful. Uh, and if others would like to support our programs, You can do so by contacting me or Alana Buenrostro at the World Affairs Council. And we ask that you make a contribution of $500 or a thousand. Want to also recognize Lucy and Henry Billingsley. The Billingsley Company is the global forum patron and they make it possible for us to bring to you so many different programs. And I know while we've not had programs in person, Uh, We'll make it up to you as soon as possible. And again, thanks for renewing your memberships. Want to thank our good friends over at the SMU Tower Center at Southern Methodist University for being a promotional partner as well. And as always, uh, please do support your local uh, independent bookstore. You know, it was just a few days ago, and I don't remember whether it was in The New York Times or The Washington Post. uh, I read a story about how independent bookstores are really struggling. And so do make that special effort to support the store in your neighborhood. You can go to interabangbooks.com and purchase The Last President of Europe, or any books in you, that you put in your shopping cart will be eligible for a 10% discount. All you have to do is type in the code DFW World. but let me remind you that's only for online purchases. Uh, As always, uh, please do, uh, go if you've missed a program or you'd like to share one of our programs, uh, go to YouTube and go to our channel at DFW World. So let me bring Bill into the conversation, but before I do so, let me just tell you a little bit about him. He's a senior advisor for Europe with McClarty Associates, and he serves as well as a non-resident senior fellow in foreign policy at the Brookings Institution foreign correspondent with really decades of experience and thousands, no doubt maybe a few million frequent flyer miles. Bill spent much of his career with Time Magazine as well as the Washington Post where he was the senior editor and foreign correspondent. Uh, Bill, I've got to say I'm sort of glad that we're not standing next to each other because I know you are six feet five inches. Uh, Our members know well that I'm about a foot shorter than that Uh, And of course, you played professional basketball for seven years in the United States and in Belgium. So it's great to have you with us. Um, Let's bring you into the conversation.
1: Uh, Well, thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be with uh, all of you in Dallas, and uh, I look forward to a stimulating discussion.
0: You know, one of the things that strikes me before we talk about your book is you've been a journalist for a number of, of, of decades, and it sure has changed. Um, when you were at the Post, at the beginning of your career, and, and when you left the Post, give us a sense of how many foreign bureaus there were and the investment that newspapers put into foreign coverage.
1: Well, uh, during the uh, 1990s, uh, well, right into the early new century, uh, newspapers were quite uh, were thriving. Uh, the Washington Post had about 26 foreign bureaus um, around the world. Um, and then when the um, the advertising uh, drought hit, and that was when um, uh, when uh, classified ads, which were the main source of income for newspapers, uh, plummeted, then uh, the, the uh, publishers tried to make uh, savings, and the first place they looked was to cut the number of foreign bureaus, which I think is a as a tragedy for American readers, because we became less and less informed about the world outside, and now with the the rise of social media, uh, it's uh, and uh, YouTube and other uh, uh, methods of, of learning about the world outside, we're get, we're getting um, uh, more information, but a lot of it is uh, is slanted and biased. And the great thing about uh, strong newspapers like the Washington Post and others uh, in those days was that we had um, a profitable business but we also had um, uh, uh, leadership at the top. My editor-in-chief Ben Bradley was is quite a legend and uh, the Graham family which owned the paper were determined to put out first-class journalism and uh, they would not tolerate uh, Uh, the kind of slanted bias reporting that we often see now, which is a a largely a result of uh, of the rise of social media.
0: We have often a lot of students who are watching and participating in our programs. What would you advise them now if they were interested in a career in journalism? Do you recommend uh, getting a a bachelor's degree in journalism, or do you recommend something else and then getting work experience and going to graduate school? What are your thoughts there?
1: I've always thought the best way to use your uh, uh, time in college was to study um, uh, a discipline, uh, whether it be history, economics, um, and then apply that to uh, your, uh, and uh, build up your writing skills. I think uh, what I I studied economics and and politics at the University of Oregon and later on in graduate school. And it served me well in uh, drawing on that knowledge uh, when I went out uh, in the world as a foreign correspondent to cover different stories. Because really, you can learn the fundamentals of writing well uh, and writing good, solid uh, newspaper story with a strong narrative in three months or so. And if you don't, if you can't learn it that quickly, then maybe you ought to find another profession.
0: You know, I should mention that we've had a lot of um, columnists from the newspaper, The Economist, and that's really their strategy. They'll hire someone who has a degree in archeology span or biochemistry. Um, They feel we know that they're smart, they can study, they can learn quickly, and then they can teach them how to write uh, as a reporter for The Economist.
1: That's right, it's it's all about telling a good story and uh, making sure you get the facts straight and and, uh, inform people above all.
0: Let's turn to to your book. Uh, It was really quite interesting just how much access you had to uh, Emmanuel Macron. Did you have a, a relationship or friendship with him before he became president?
1: No, we actually got to know each other through uh, mutual acquaintances, uh, uh, particularly the French ambassador to the UN, uh, Francois de who's now a senior figure back at the foreign ministry, uh, put me in touch with him. And he was familiar, it turned out, with my work. I had been uh, Paris Bureau Chief for the Washington Post in the 1990s. And those days, uh, my uh, uh, writing appeared in the International Herald Tribune which was followed very closely by the, uh, uh, by the French uh, political class. Um, so those six years in Paris uh, served me well. I, I learned uh, French fluently and I was able to conduct our conversations in French, which is something that uh, President Macron appreciated, even though he speaks fairly decent uh, English, but uh, allowing uh, having a a leader, a figure of his stature, to express himself in his native tongue was important because he is his mind is so nimble and uh, he's got a, a lot of uh, interesting thoughts and it was important to uh, have him express himself in his, uh, his own language.
0: Take a minute or two, Bill, and tell us where he came from because he, he really does have quite an, um, an elite education and background. Especially when you think about the French system, which puts so much uh, weight on where you go to school
1: right well there there was nothing that really foreshadowed him becoming president of France I mean he was the he was raised uh, in a uh, middle class household the son of two doctors, mother and father in the, the northern industrial town of Amiens and um, is Education uh, first at uh, in Amiens, then later at uh, elite schools in Paris, uh, were a, a classical road to uh, to uh, getting involved in the the, the ruling establishment. Uh, but where he really um, broke ground was this daring uh, move to uh, create his own party. And he saw the emptiness of uh, of uh, the old ideologies of 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 going from what left-wing to right-wing governments in France and he said all of these old tired definitions don't apply to the world today so he really created a party that was designed to select what would be the best policy prescriptions for France and and France has lagged behind uh, badly over the last couple of decades and he he made a strong pitch, uh, particularly to young people and others who wanted to see France uh, really shaken up and, uh, and brought into the 21st century. And that's what he's tried to do, uh, but of course not without uh, a lot of resistance because <clears throat> France in particular, being an old country is uh, stubbornly uh, allergic uh, to change.
0: When in, in his last election, presidential election, there was a runoff he won by how much?
1: In the the runoff against Marine Le Pen, uh, uh, the leader of the the, the far right uh, um, National Front party, he won sixty six percent of the vote against her thirty four percent. So it was a pretty uh, substantial victory. But uh, nonetheless, she has quite a uh, strong base um, in uh, on the the right wing, and I I i predict that uh, the next uh, re- uh, the elections in 2022 will feature a runoff once again between him and her
0: so you wrote when he entered office in may 2017 he had three major goals modernize france relaunch campaign for unified europe and establish europe as a major player in a multipolar world and in a sense it reminded me a bit of George W. Bush, with what his goals were. And then he was, everything he had hoped to do was completely derailed, detoured by 9 11. And in a sense, Macron's had that same situation with what happened domestically. Bring us, you know, discuss with us the, the whole situation with uh, Gilets Jaunes and how that came about.
1: Right. Well, uh, as you said, Macron got off to a very fast start. He uh, he pushed through, uh, um, in the face of a lot of skepticism from even from his supporters, um, some dramatic and bold uh, reforms of uh, the economy, the pension system, as a way of uh, trying to get. Wean people off of depending their dependence on the state. In France, about 57 when he came into office, 57 percent of the economy was uh, was run by the state. Um, and he said, you know, we 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 need to unleash the entrepreneurial energies of our people, particularly young people, and uh, and make them less uh, reliant on handouts uh, from uh, the government. And so this was his uh, his main pitch. He wanted to bring back a lot of uh, expatriates, uh, French expatriates who have gone abroad in there because they were disillusioned uh, with uh, the the weak economy in, in France. And uh, the hope that uh, Macron inspired was uh, 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 was quite significant. And uh, sure enough, a lot of expatriates, young expatriates have come back to France and tried to launch new uh, businesses. But at the same time, and something he did not foresee, nor did uh, any of the, the, the com- uh, commentary class, that there was in the countryside um, uh, rising resistance to all of this change. And in particular, uh, one of the changes he made uh, was the the spark that, that lit the fire. Um, and that was a, a, a notably positive uh, policy that a lot of people had applauded which was in order to get uh, to reduce the levels of car pollution he wanted to uh, encourage people to move from diesel fuel cars toward electric cars and so they raised uh, the tax just a a few pennies on uh, diesel fuel but for people living in the countryside who own these old automobiles that Dallas Baptist University is a global, Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general,
0: email Lee Bratcher, at leeb at dbu.edu.
1: Because diesel fuel costs less uh, than regular gasoline in France. Uh, for them, this was the straw that broke the camel's back that they were already struggling, um, many of them making uh, less than $1,000 a month and having to drive themselves to jobs maybe 30 minutes away. And the cost of, of this fuel was going to be. Uh, a significant burden. And people who live in the cities, notably in Paris in France, uh, they didn't, uh, they didn't uh, see this coming because they uh, benefit from subsidized public transport and don't depend on a car the way people do in the provinces. So this erupted uh, in an in unusual way in that uh, a lot of these people in the provinces occupied the roundabouts Uh, the traffic roundabouts and uh, and this continued to grow and grow and then finally led to protests uh, throughout the city and um, and they really turned on President Macron in a vicious and violent way and I would say you know he was uh, there was one particular incident when he was chased out of a town that he was visiting uh, to try to uh, calm down the population and they were saying, we, our job is to send you to the guillotine. And he retreated in behind the walls of the Elysee Palace and became, I think, uh, rather depressed uh, um, and uh, didn't go out into public for three weeks and then came, finally emerged with a plan to go visit, uh, run a series of town hall meetings around the country.
0: Uh, Before you get to that, Bill, let me ask, let me just remind our our viewers, go ahead and ask questions and we'll work them into the conversation. Talk about, because I want to get to the the great national debate, but talk about just the personal toil that what happened uh, and how it affected him. And I think it was so interesting that uh, his advisors, including his wife, Brigitte, said, you know, we really need to sort of take you out of the for a while and have you recover, rest, and just not be this flashpoint out in the public.
1: Yeah, and I think that's what he did. I think it was in December of uh, 2019 and so for about three weeks retreated behind the walls of the Alize Palace, but of course he was frustrated. He couldn't understand why um, there would be such violent resistance um, um, to uh, his policy ideas, which after all were intended to uh, modernize France, to uh, to make things better, and subsequent later on, when things had calmed down, we I had a conversation with him, which I asked him. I said, "What what surprised you the most about uh, about this uh, your your first two years in power?" And he just said, "He said I would say it's the hatred that I sensed in uh, among." Uh, my compatriots, um, um, the, the, the angry, violent uh, uh, rejection of my ideas. It's one thing to disagree with um, my ideas, but to do so with such violent passions uh, is really a, a sign that politics is becoming polarized, not just in the United States, but in France and all over the world. Um, and he found, found this to be very threatening to the nature of democracy.
0: So When he resurfaced, he wrote an open letter. Uh, I think that was in early 2019. What was his approach in that letter?
1: Well, he was trying to explain the rationale behind his reforms and he said, I understand um, the frustrations. Maybe I didn't uh, uh, take them into account uh, as much as I should have. Uh, he promised uh, to be more understanding. He had been criticized for having a glacial arrogance, uh, trying to float above the fray. But that's not really his nature. He's a he's a micromanager. Sleeps very little, four hours a night. Um, wants to get involved in every detail of, of the policy. So. Um, Is that a negative?
0: Is that a Jimmy Carter syndrome?
1: Well, in the in the French system, it is because the um, in their system, the president is supposed to be um, above day-to-day politics. Uh, The prime minister is the one who uh, runs the day-to-day affairs of government and traditionally presidents have used their prime minister as sort of a shield to uh, blunt the uh, criticism from the public. I mean, Ma- uh, Francois Mitterrand was a master at that. He went through three or four prime ministers because uh, they became extremely unpopular while he uh, would uh, project uh, the image of a philosopher king thinking great thoughts about the future of the world and not getting his hands soiled by uh, the, uh, the mudslinging of politics.
0: You know, when, well, now I want to ask you about the great national debate, but I couldn't help thinking, and excuse me if to those who may disagree, but that the discussion in France about the politics is at such a higher level than we're experiencing here. And you really see this, how President Macron traveled around France over several weeks.
1: Well, that's right. He, uh subjected himself to humiliating abuse from um, the public in these town hall meetings. Um, um, He attended about 15 or 16 of them around the country uh, in the early part of uh, of, uh, of, uh, I guess it was January uh, 2019 and and February. So for about two to three months uh, he would go out and would participate in these discussions. Some of them would last six or seven hours. Uh, He would stay there until well past midnight, as long as people had questions to ask and wanted to offer their comments. And he thought it was important to to hear their criticisms and try to rebut them as best as, as he could. And he did get some grudging support for that from a lot of his opponents. And I thought that this was helped him Turn around his plunge in the popularity polls um, at that time.
0: Where's his popularity now? Where's it staying? I would
1: say it's probably again it's been driven by the pandemic and uh, the related crises with that. But I would say it's close to 40 percent, and at at the the low point it was probably down around 20 Mm percent.
0: So let's move to his relationship with some of the key players on the global stage. And of course, he's been called the Trump whisperer at times. Sometimes that's been viewed positively and other times negatively. Tell us some behind the scenes anecdotes about their, his strategy in meeting with, uh, with Donald Trump the first time.
1: Well, it's interesting. All the uh, other European leaders uh, were aghast by uh, 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 Trump's election and in particular, Angela Merkel, who was seen as the most experienced leader of Europe. And she uh, did not get along at all from the beginning with Trump, said, you know, I I can't bear being in the same room with him. And Trump in particular was uh, was quite critical of Germany and her leadership because uh, he believed that uh, that Germany in particular had taken advantage of uh, of the, uh, the trading relationship with uh, the United States. So Trump became known by other. He said, look, we have to maintain a dialogue, a, a channel with the, uh, the the leader of the United States because the transatlantic partnership is so important. And so he struck up this rapport and being, what, uh, uh, more than 30 years younger than uh, than Trump, it was uh, it would seem to be an implausible uh, uh, rapport, but yet they they found uh, some common bonds. And he, he described to me, he said, I saw from the beginning that we had, we shared a similar approach to politics. We were both political mavericks uh, who came out of nowhere, never had held political office before, and both of us destroyed the traditional Political establishments in our home countries. And uh, I think this resonated with Trump as well. And um, plus, they had a, a, several good meals in, in Paris with their wives. And uh, Trump came away feeling, oh, this is a really sympathetic young um, leader and I like, uh, I get along well with him. And so he was invited to the White House on the very first, uh, as the first. Um, uh, state uh, visit of the Trump administration and uh, spent three days with Trump, and that was uh, they got off to a fairly good start um, uh, in terms of their own personalities, but politically they clashed uh, repeatedly. Whether it was over the climate change accords uh, signed in Paris, with over the Iran agreement, with the World Trade Organization. Yeah,
0: let's let's, uh, and I don't know if we have the pictures, but when I think about the two of them together. I have two images, one that handshake when President Macron tries to get the upper uh, vice, uh, vice-like grip on President Trump, and then the other picture of President Trump picking off a piece of dandruff, which probably did not go over real well. But President Trump and Macron really had a tough discussions on Iran, and Macron felt that he was misled by the President Trump, isn't that accurate?
1: Yeah, I think that he felt uh, that he had made um, an impression with Trump and had made some progress in convincing him of uh, the reasons to stay involved in this agreement because it was, um, uh, despite all the criticism that Trump gave, Macron said, look, this is the best uh, uh, process we have going to prevent Iran from. Acquiring a nuclear weapon and developing it on its own, and so he said, "Unless we, uh, until we come up with a better, better system, it would be foolhardy to pull out." Uh, but, but Trump, as we have seen, uh, has um, uh, it, it despises the policies that were put into place by the previous administration, no matter how uh, positive they may be, and uh, was determined to reject it out of hand.
0: What's the state of their relationship now? I think they they have not
1: uh, uh, communicated as frequently as they used to. They used to speak, uh, you know, a couple times every week. Um, but uh, I think right now, uh, with the uh, political campaign in the United States, uh, uh, most leaders have uh, have stopped uh, talking to. To uh, Donald Trump, they did have a good discussion um, a few months ago when uh, they were again uh, Macron was trying to persuade Trump that maybe it would be worth having a conversation with uh, with the president of Iran directly, and tried he tried to set up a meeting at the United Nations with them, which. Uh, it fell short because the Iranian president, uh, Hassan Rouhani, backed out at the last minute because he saw that this could be a dangerous thing for him politically at home.
0: What would the relationship be with um, a President Biden?
1: Well, I think uh, uh, Biden has been a classic, uh, transatlanticist all his political career so I think in Europe there is great hope that he will return the United States to um, you know uh, uh, its traditional leadership role at the head of the Atlantic alliance but uh, but others including Macron say uh, we're wary about this because we don't think that we can go back to the status quo ante uh, because the United States was moving away from Europe even before Trump took office, and he's uh, he's quite firm in his view about that. He saw uh, President Obama's pivot to Asia as a as a clear sign that uh, that Europe was no longer as important for the United States, and that's why he's been very uh, aggressive in his his pitch to other European leaders that. We need to prepare for the day when the United States will no longer be our guarantor, the guarantor of our security, and we need to have a European defense um, uh, of our own that we, they, we can stand. He calls it strategic autonomy uh, for Europe, um, and this is this is one of the central points of his presidency, which uh, uh, you know has not been uh, shared by Chancellor Merkel or other leaders.
0: And Bill, were these thoughts not accelerated? Uh, by President Trump's uh, statements regarding NATO and burden-sharing, and um, just overall how he continued to make statements regarding uh, European just Euro- European countries, basically just leaning on the back of the United States.
1: Yes, no, it, it, it certainly did um, uh, resonate in Europe. And Chancellor Merkel, who was very, who was by nature very cautious and very reluctant to uh, cut the cord of uh, solidarity with the United States said it maybe it is time for Europe to take its own destiny into its own hands. And, um, and, but trying to um, build a, an independent European defense uh, is going to be extremely difficult. Now with Britain leaving the European Union, France is the, the dominant military power on the European continent. Uh, but uh, as much as Macron has appealed to, uh, Mac, uh, to Merkel to join him in a, in a concerted effort to build a, an independent European defense, she's reluctant to do that because uh, that at home in Germany, that's an unpopular view. because Germany has become a largely pacifist nation uh, over the last 70 years. Uh, partly in response, of course, to uh, the tragedies of World War II, but also because of the nervousness of their neighbors.
0: I'm glad a few minutes ago you you mentioned China, and it seems to me that President Macron um, is certainly in agreement with President Trump about the uh, threat of China. We have a a question from uh, uh, Ms. Cullenberg. How does Macron, how does President Macron plan to position France and Europe at large in the competition between the United States and China?
1: Well, Macron has been quite clear in his approach to China. He's visited China every year since becoming president. Uh, he received uh, Xi Jinping at uh, in Paris, and each time he has emphasized that, look, if China is going to uh, aspire to be a leading power in the world, it has to play by the rules, and he said, There has to be reciprocity if we are going to open up our economies to China, China has to do so in a similar way to uh, France and other Western countries. Uh, But at the same time he is, uh, I would say, uh, Macron and other European leaders are worried about being dragged along by the United States on a collision course uh, with China. Uh, China's uh, their second biggest trading partner after the United States, and uh, they don't want to do anything that would further damage uh, their economies.
0: Where does France stand on Huawei?
1: I think they have uh, stood uh, more with the United States than Germany has. I think uh, uh, Macron shares the view that uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the leap toward 5G technology um, and uh, making your, your, your infrastructure dependent on Huawei would be a dangerous step. Um, and uh, Germany is slowly coming around to that view as Britain has after initially saying, oh no, Huawei is the cheapest, uh, most efficient way to do this. Let's, uh, let's go along with it. But now after the warnings from their intelligence agencies and defense ministries, uh, both France and what well, France is pulling Britain and Germany along and uh, taking a more skeptical view. What, what Macron would like to see is a European solution. So he has touted uh, Nokia and Ericsson from, uh, Nokia being from Finland, Ericsson from, uh, from uh, Sweden as uh, the companies that should be uh, building the 5G technology for Europe.
0: Before we talk about some of the recent events in the last week that have taken place that are just so traumatic and atrocious, um, give us uh, sort of your view now about Macron's overall global uh, perspective and involvement because he's traveled thousands of miles, uh, been very involved in the Middle East. What's his overall strategy?
1: Well, I would say uh, he is above all a a total pragmatist. Uh, He has no illusions uh, that uh, uh, Vladimir Putin is a brutal authoritarian figure, one who assassinates his political opponents. Yet at the same time, Macron says we have no choice but to uh, develop a uh, dialogue with him and try to find channels, areas where we can cooperate because are in, in areas where our interests are, we have shared interests, um, and the similar, uh, he's taken the same attitude toward China, and also with in his dealings with uh, Donald Trump. While Merkel may be allergic to even speaking with Trump, uh, Macron says no, we have to. Uh, he's the leader of the United States; he was elected by the American voters. And we have to deal with them as repugnant as you may feel about uh, the policies he follows. So I would say above all, a ruthless pragmatism in his views, he's ready to talk to anybody. um, And uh, if uh, in order to uh, find a way way to reach solutions because he has, he is uh, seductor um, by nature and he feels, if he spends enough time with somebody, you'll be able to uh, convince them to see the wisdom of his ways.
0: Bill, how involved was Russia, uh, or is Russia now, in hacking and trying to create some of the issues in France that they've been doing here?
1: Well, from their very first meeting, um, Macron has, uh, has made that quite clear to Putin. He wanted to he knows Putin aspires to be the, uh, like one of the, czar, the early czars, Peter the Great. So when he invited uh, Putin to visit France shortly after his election, he, uh, he pulled out all the stops. He, uh, they, had a, uh, they had a festive dinner at, at Versailles um, and so he, he saw all of this luxurious splendor. But at, then they, when they had a press conference, he said, he spoke out immediately, he said, I know that Russia had tried to uh, um, interfere with the French election and I, we stopped it and we're determined to do so in the future. And he basically pointed a finger at Putin, right? And he said, uh, we know you were behind this and we, we successfully uh, blocked it. And uh, if you try this again, we're, there will be uh, severe consequences.
0: I suspect that all of our viewers know what happened about a week ago in France when a lycée teacher was beheaded by um, um, someone of Chechen heritage, and already over 10 or 11 people have been arrested. What people may not be aware of, though, is that President Macron gave an important speech at the beginning of the month. And so in a sense, the tensions were rising. and in, in his speech, he, he warned the F- French about the rising threat of Islamist separatism. Uh, we only have a, another 20 minutes and we could spend a, another hour talking about this, but this has been such a critical issue on so many levels with, with, with France. Tell us about how Macron has had to really have a balancing act on this.
1: Yeah, well, uh, some you may recall, uh, two years before he got elected in 2015, there was this horrible massacre at the Bataclan theater. More than 130 people were killed. Then um, there were other, uh, they, I think there were others killed at a soccer stadium, and uh, these were turned out to be homegrown terrorists. So they, it, it was learned that they were. They had gone off to Syria, joined ISIS, and acquired this, uh, this uh, lust for brutality uh, by fighting with ISIS and brought it back to France. And so this, the, the, the fear of this homegrown terrorism in the alienated second, third generation uh, of immigrants, uh, immigrant children, um, is something that really has spread fear. In France, since those attacks, and uh, for France has the largest Muslim population um, in Europe. What uh, is the percentage now? It's uh, it, it officially they say it's about seven or eight percent, but unofficially it's probably closer to twelve percent, uh, because you have a lot of people who are not counted in the, in the census and all that. You have. These area, vast uh, stretches of suburban ghettos that are filled with, uh, um, mainly where you only hear Arabic spoken, uh, and these are uh, the offspring of immigrants who came in from uh, North Africa. But now we we've seen more and more um, uh, immigrants in, in large families and mo- with multiple wives uh, coming into to France. You just have to take the the metro or the train. Uh, system and you'll see how, how many uh, foreigners from, uh, from the Middle East and North Africa are now um, uh, living in France. And this is further, he, uh, not only politically, this, is the, this fear is what has, has fueled the rise of Marine Le Pen and her supporters on the far right, because she says we've got to put a stop to this, mass deportations, uh, block all immigration, and, uh, and that's her solution, and it's resonating with a, a segment of the French population, but, but further down the road, I mean, one of the fascinating aspects about Macron is that he's, a, he's the most interesting young leader in the world. He's only uh, 42 right now, he was elected at the age of 39, and he thinks into the future and at uh, one of our last conversations I said what do you think the world will look like 30 years from now and he said I think uh, uh, the big uh, test will be whether we can succeed in a spectacular transformation of Africa because if we fail the immigration flows that we've seen coming into Europe lately will be nothing compared to what we will see in the future and he pointed out that millions and millions of people are suffering from drought shortage of food And when they have to move, they are desperate, and they're going to try to find their way into Europe. And he said, we could be overrun, and Europe, this could be the destruction of Europe.
0: We have a a question from an anonymous attendee. And again, let me remind you, that we have about another 15 minutes, so please do continue to send questions. This uh, question is, apparently the large migration of Arabs into France has caused a great amount of conflict and unrest for quite some time. Is there any hope of better assimilation in the future? Um, You've touched on this, but I I think it'd be helpful to go a bit farther. Is Macron active in proposing policies to help improve the relations? And I would add, Bill, I I suspect this is getting harder when you had the situation that happened last week And the fact that he is trying to position himself to run against um, Marine Le Pen.
1: Yes, that's right. And his solution is mainly predicated on better education. He said we need to uh, inculcate in these uh, disaffected youths um, uh, uh, a sense of French values and we need to open up our educational system so that we get more and more, of these young people who can become mainstream. We need to give them, as he said, something to live for rather than something to die for. Because many of them who uh, were laid off, can't find work, um, spend their time going on uh, on uh, Twitter or social media and uh, visiting these uh, uh, radicalized uh, Islamist uh, websites. And this, is, this was the main recruiting tool for thousands of young French Muslims who went uh, to fight in Syria with the Islamic State. And now they're, they're going down to uh, the Sahel uh, region in Africa where Islamic State has a strong presence and fighting for them there. And this is where the French military has been extremely active trying to, to block Islamic State from establ- reestablishing itself in the area of Mali and Chad uh, those and trying to topple the governments there. So I think uh, he sees education as the best uh, tool. I asked about, uh, you know, in the United States, we've used affirmative action to try and uh, 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 bring minorities into the, the the mainstream. He said, it won't work in, in France. What we need to do is uh, expand the reach of, of good education, make uh, classroom sizes smaller, uh, have more teachers. Um, now you, but you mentioned the recent beheading of this teacher, it was driven by the fact that he was trying to teach the values of free speech by showing these pictures of the prophet Muhammad which had uh, generated an earlier attack on a, uh, the French news Weekly that had published these these pictures. And so it shows that there is is still fierce um, antagonism on the part of uh, a lot of uh, concerned Muslim uh, um, uh, elements of the population in France, who uh, will not tolerate the sense of division between religion and uh, the state uh, as prescribed in the French uh, in French law.
0: And that truly really is really a foundation of, of France to have this pure separation of, of state and religion.
1: That's right. They call it laicite, which means uh, you are not allowed to uh, to show um, um, uh, a, your, your religious, allow your religious views to interfere with uh, the role of state. This led a few years ago to a, a, a controversy over the wearing of the burqa. This was seen as a uh, as a a manifestation of religious views and so they banned any wearing of the burka in schools and public places.
0: I have a question from Joe. Uh, What is the role of France in the negotiations between the EU and the UK uh, over future trade relations? And there's been new news on that in the last week or so as well.
1: Right, well France is um, has uh, been uh, insisting that the EU must stick together, the 27, um, in the, and, and taking a very tough stand against Britain um, on this. The, the Britain has been pleading for special trading arrangements, but uh, the EU and France says, look, we cannot uh, abrogate our own rules to accommodate Britain. Uh, they've decided to leave, and so they now have to accept uh, the EU um, and, um, and respect our rules if they're going to have a, a future trading relationship. And this has really been the core of the conflict, that and the whole question of uh, the border between Northern Ireland and, and, um, and, and Ireland itself, uh, because Ireland will remain a member and um, Northern Ireland is still part of the United Kingdom. And, and trying to sort this out is Has been fiendishly difficult.
0: What about COVID-19? I don't have at the top of my head how many um, people have died in France but I know it's significant and there's been a resurgence and they've just uh, restated some pretty draconian lockdowns including closing the bars with a curfew at at 9 p.m. I think.
1: Right. Well, France has been hit very hard. Probably uh, as bad as any country, except maybe Spain and, uh, and northern Italy, uh, but they're in this uh, second wave, which has been surging uh, for the last few weeks in France and across, indeed, across Europe. Um, the French are now uh, have uh, seeing more cases on a daily basis than even at the previous peak uh, back in in April. Uh, they're about thirty thousand cases a day announced just uh, yesterday and so uh, they're expecting their hospitals to be overwhelmed uh, by more unless they can find a way to put and put a stop to this and what they have found is uh, just uh, limiting um, uh, uh, access to bars and restaurants uh, may not be enough. They may have to shift back to a total lockdown which has just happened in Ireland and I think you will see other European countries now moving to a lockdown, where Europe has been—it's been, uh, it's been uh, usually a month, uh, two or two to three months ahead of the United States in these uh, surges. And a lot of scientists in the United States uh, say that we uh, here in our country are are entering a dark phase over the next two to three months. Could see some of the worst uh, days of the pandemic for us. So. We should we should uh, try to learn and uh, from what uh, Europe is experiencing now.
0: Where does France stand on a vaccine? I mean, traditionally, they've always had quite a quite a developed pharmaceutical industry.
1: Well, they're they're also they have uh, drug companies like Sanofi uh, that are trying to develop a vaccine um, just as uh, several American uh, companies and in Britain as well. Um, But uh, with the uh, rigid testing requirements, they don't expect to have a vaccine ready in France until much later next year.
0: I hear you have your puppy outside.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: (laughs) We have a question from Tarek. Uh, Most North Africans in France are not Arabs. Many of them have melted and are probably not counted as Muslims. Uh, can you explain to us what is the contribution of many of this third generation north africans to french society not really well, sure Did you yeah well
1: there 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 have been some success stories and macron in fact uh, quite a number of them have been uh, had joined uh, political uh, macron's political movement but uh, uh, what has uh, the the attacks in 2015 and subsequent terrorist attacks you know, it doesn't take much. It could be some isolated cell of terrorists uh, who, who strike fear across the whole country. Uh, so I certainly didn't want to uh, depict uh, a lar- the majority of the Muslim population were peace-loving people and want to integrate more into France as being as sharing the views of these uh, of these uh, terrorist movements. Um, but it's difficult. Uh, When you have the social and economic inequalities uh, um, in the uh, path toward success in in French society. I once asked, uh, Macron went to the Ecole Nationale d'Administration, the ENA, which is uh, kind of a finishing school for the elite of, of government. And I once interviewed them on the 100th anniversary of the school. I said, well, how many uh, young um, minority um, students do you have? Arabs? And he says, "Oh, we don't, uh, we don't have any kind of program to bring them in because it would not be uh, uh, respect our rule of liberté, égalité, fraternité. In other words, everybody has an equal chance. Well, except these people grow up, young people grow up in a in a community that where they don't have the same chances and." Uh, and their schools are not uh, as well equipped, and uh, and they they don't. And Macron has recognized this, and he, to his credit, he's uh, partly under the influence of Brigitte. I would say she, being a former teacher, has influenced his views about the importance of education and bringing good quality education to every sector of society as a way of improving the prospects of uh, the underprivileged.
0: One of the areas where France is a leader in Europe, whether it's whether this is good or bad is for others to judge, but that's in arms sales. Uh, how is that viewed in the country? And um, Macron has been quite active traveling and, and being quite a good arms merchant himself, as has President Trump.
1: Well, because France has a, a strong uh, military, um, it has... Uh, been uh, building aircraft, tanks of its own over the years, and uh, in order to su- sustain these industries and make them profitable in the long run, you, you need to sell abroad. The United States dominates the sale, arm sales abroad in many uh, places, but France has done pretty well. It sold its uh, Rafale fighter jets to India. Um, they've sold their submarines to Australia. And, uh, and, of course, uh, to Saudi Arabia as well. So, you know, he sees this as an important uh, contributing factor to France's strength as a, as a commercial uh, power. But there is, of course, a resistance. A lot of people say, you know, we are not, we should not, our country should not be in the business of being merchants of death. And, um, and there is particularly a lot of opposition on the left political left in, um, in, in France. But, but I would say the majority of the population recognizes that this is the way the world is. Uh, uh, if France suddenly stopped selling arms, then the United States, the Russia and others would just fill the void. Um, and if we're going to have a strong military in France, we need to build our, these weapon systems for not just for ourselves, but also to be able to sell them abroad in in order to make these
0: industries thrive in the future. In France more, I would assume, than any other European country has a greater footprint in Africa and obviously the Middle East.
1: Yes, because that's uh, the colonial legacy is uh, is strong there in French West Africa and uh, also in the Middle East, Uh, Lebanon former um, colonial um, uh, territory for France, and the Levant stretching into into, uh, Syria, and even Iraq. Uh, When Macron has made two trips in the last few months to Lebanon, he's also stopped off in Iraq. And now with the United States pulling out, um, he sees an opportunity for France to become a a acquire greater influence. Let's
0: talk about Lebanon. I mean, after that horrible explosion, which killed so many people uh, in Beirut, destroying the ports and the neighborhoods nearby, uh, he visited the site even before the prime minister of Lebanon. Why do you do that? Well, I think it's, uh, again, his
1: nature. You know, they talk about him in France, like the Energizer Bunny. He sees, sees he wants to be actively engaged and he thinks, France needs to be, uh, um, uh, and Europe indeed, should, should be much more active on the world stage. And so he's trying to set this example because Europe is usually extremely reticent about, uh, about making its uh, views known, partly because uh, they, they need to coordinate the views of 27 countries. But even take Germany, for example, which is often cited as uh, the strongest economic power uh, Germany usually stands up for its economic interests, but it's reluctant, it doesn't have much in the way of military power, and it's reluctant to get embroiled in controversies abroad, and Macron believes that Europe needs to change its profile and get actively engaged in, uh, in places like Lebanon, uh, where Europe might be able to broker a political
0: solution. So we have a question from Share Jacobs. Why the title, last president of Europe?
1: Uh, well, very good question. I often get asked that. Uh, some people say, you know, this is, this sounds a little absurd. Obviously Europe's not gonna disappear and he won't be the last president to uh, be in Europe. But the, the point of the title is really uh, after all the research and reporting I did, uh, I concluded that uh, Macron is really the only leader left in Europe now who remains faithful to the founding to the values and ideals of the founding fathers of the European Union. You know, after World War II, um, after the, the the terrible tragedy, uh, European leaders came together and created the, uh, the European Coal and Steel Community. And then later on other institutions, there was a conviction then that they should make war impossible. Uh, after two uh, costly world wars in the 20th century on in, uh, that devastated the European continent. They wanted to make that impossible. And it started with reconciliation between France and Germany. And I would say uh, down through, uh, right through uh, Helmut Kohl in Germany and Francois Mitterrand, there was a succession of French and German leaders uh, who believed strongly in Europe moving forward uh, toward what an ultimate goal of maybe a United States of Europe. Uh, Jacques Delors used to say, uh, uh, Europe is like a bicycle, it has to keep moving forward or we will fall off. And um, somehow it seems the, the last few years, uh, the, uh, that view has been, uh, has been muffled somewhat and Macron has tried to bring it back to life. by uh, speaking out on the importance of these values. And the reason he does, not just for nostalgia for the vision of these founding fathers, it's really that the problems he says of the 21st century uh, surpass the ability of nation states to solve them. We need to collaborate uh, on cross-border solutions, whether it's climate change, and now uh, most vividly, we see with the COVID-19 virus uh, pandemic, uh, that when Europe, Europe's country and nation-states scrambled to find their own solution, it led to chaos. <clears throat> and some predicted it might even be the end of Europe, <clears throat> but Macron says this only proves his point <clears throat> that uh, Europe needs to work together to find solutions to these problems.
0: Bill, have you heard from President Macron <coughs> since, he, uh, since the book was published?
1: I have. Just a couple of weeks ago, I received a very nice letter from him. Good. Um, saying, uh, you know, you know I, I appreciate very much your interest and in your hard work, and this is a very impressive uh, book. Uh, he does well, look- his
0: review probably means more than mine, but I, I will agree with him. Uh, I echo his comments. I really enjoyed it, and thanks for writing it, and thanks for being our guest today. And let me remind everyone that you can pick up a copy of uh, The Last President of Europe by going to interabangbooks.com or your independent bookstore in whatever city you live in. Hope you'll continue to support our World Affairs Council by uh, uh, supporting programs like this, as well as texting uh, DFW uh, 244321. Thanks for watching and we'll see you again uh, next week.